If you are using your pew Bibles, it can be found on page 233. First Kings chapter two, we'll read this chapter in its entirety. First Kings chapter two. Now the days of David drew nigh that he should die. And he charged Solomon, his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth Be thou strong, therefore, and show thyself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes and his commandments and his judgments and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that thou mayest prosper in all that thou doest, and whithersoever thou turnest thyself, that the Lord may continue his word which he spake concerning me, saying, If thy children take heed to their way, To walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, there shall not fail thee, said he, a man on the throne of Israel. Moreover, thou knowest also what Joab the son of Zeruiah did to me, and what he did to the two captains of the hosts of Israel, unto Abner the son of Ner, and unto Amasa the son of Jether, whom he slew, and shed the blood of war in peace. And put the blood of war upon his girdle that was about his loins, and in his shoes that were on his feet. Do therefore according to thy wisdom. Let not his whore head go down to the grave in peace. But show kindness unto the sons of Barzillai the Gileadite. Let them be of those that eat at thy table. For so they came to me when I fled because of Absalom thy brother. And behold, thou hast with thee Shimei, the son of Gera, a Benjaminite of Bechurim, which cursed me with a grievous curse in the day when I went to Mahanaim. And he came down to meet me at Jordan, and I swear to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put thee to death with the sword. Now therefore hold him not guiltless, for thou art a wise man, and knowest what thou oughtest to do unto him, but his whore head bring thou down to the grave with blood." And so David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the days that David reigned over Israel were 40 years. Seven years he reigned in Hebron. Thirty years reigned he in Jerusalem. Then sat Solomon upon the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was established greatly. And Adonijah the son of Haggith came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, and she said, Comest thou peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. He said, Moreover, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And she said, Say on. And he said, Thou knowest that the kingdom was mine, and that all Israel set their faces upon me, that I should reign. Howbeit the kingdom is turned about and has become my brother's, for it was his from the Lord. And now I ask one petition of thee, Deny me not. And she said to him, Say on. And he said, Speak, I pray thee, unto Solomon the king, for he will not say thee nay, that he give me Abishag the Shunammite to be my wife. 
Bathsheba said, Well, I will speak for thee unto the king. Bathsheba therefore went unto King Solomon to speak unto him for Adonijah. The king rose up to meet her and bowed himself to her and sat down on his throne and caused a seat to be set for the king's mother. And she sat on his right hand. The king, and then she said, I desire one small petition of thee, I pray thee, say me not nay. And the king said to her, Ask on, my mother, for I will not say thee nay. And she said, Let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah thy brother to wife. And king Solomon answered and said to his mother, Why dost thou ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask for him the kingdom also. For he is mine elder brother, even for him, and for Abiathar the priest, and for Joab the son of Zeruiah. And King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, God do so to me, and more also, if Adonijah have not spoken this word against his own life. Now therefore, as the Lord liveth, which hath established me, and set me on the throne of David my father, and who hath made me a house, as he promised Adonijah shall be put to death this day. And King Solomon sent by the hand of Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he fell upon him that he died. And unto Abiathar the priest said the king, Get thee to Anathoth, unto thine own fields, for thou art worthy of death, but I will not at this time put thee to death, because thou bearest the ark of the Lord God before David my father. And because thou hast been afflicted in all wherein my father was afflicted. So Solomon thrust out Abiathar from being priest unto the Lord, that he might fulfill the word of the Lord which he spoke concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. Then tidings came to Joab. For Joab had turned after Adonijah, though he turned not after Absalom. And Joab fled into the tabernacle of the Lord and caught hold of the horns of the altar. And it was told King Solomon that Joab was fled into the tabernacle of the Lord. And behold, he is by the altar. And Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, saying, Go, fall upon him. Benaiah came to the tabernacle of the Lord and said to him, Thus saith the king, Come forth. And he said, Nay, but I will die here. Benaiah brought the king word again, saying, Thus said Joab, and thus he answered me. And the king said to him, Do as he hath said, and fall upon him, and bury him, that thou mayest take away the innocent blood which Joab shed from me and from the house of my father. The Lord shall return his blood upon his own head, who fell upon two men more righteous and better than he, and slew them with a sword. My father David, not knowing thereof, to wit, Abner, the son of Ner, captain of the host of Israel, and Amasa, the son of Jether, captain of the host of Judah. Their blood shall therefore return upon the head of Joab and upon the head of his seed forever. But upon David and upon his seed and upon his house and upon his throne shall there be peace forever from the Lord. So Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, went up and fell upon him and slew him. And he was buried in his own house in the wilderness. And the king put Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, in his room over the host, and Zadok, the priest, did the king put in the room of Abiathar. The king sent and called for Shimei and said to him, Build thee a house in Jerusalem and dwell there, and go not forth thence any whither. For it shall be that on the day that thou goest out and passest over the brook Kidron, thou shalt know for certain that thou shalt surely die. Thy blood shall be upon thine own head. 
And Shimei said to the king, The saying is good, as my lord the king hath said, so will thy servant do. And Shimei dwelt in Jerusalem many days. It came to pass at the end of three years that two of the servants of Shimei ran away unto Achish, son of Makkah, king of Gath. And they told Shimei, saying, Behold, thy servants be in Gath. And Shimei arose and settled his ass and went to Gath, to Achish, to seek his servants. And Shimei went and brought his servants from Gath. And it was told Solomon that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and was come again. And the king sent and called for Shimei and said to him, Did I not make thee to swear by the Lord, and protested unto thee, saying, Know for a certain, on the day thou goest out, and walkest abroad any whither, that thou shalt surely die? And thou hast said unto me, The word that I have heard is good. Why then hast thou not kept the oath of the Lord, and the commandment which I charged thee with? The king said, Moreover to Shimei, Thou knowest all the wickedness which thine heart is privy to, that thou didst to David my father, and therefore the Lord shall return thy wickedness upon thine own head. And King Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. So the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, which went out and fell upon him, that he died. And the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. Since the reading of God's word. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, how thankful we are for your word as it is given to instruct us in the things that we are to believe and the things that we are to do. We pray that your word, which is sharper than a two-edged sword, would pierce our hearts uh, and rouse us from our apathy that we might delight to do those things that you've commanded us to do and to believe the things you've commanded us to to believe through the power and strength of your Holy Spirit, which dwells in our hearts, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Be certain that your sin will find you out. Certainly seems to be the predominant feature of this particular chapter. One of the most critical junctures uh, that you face, if any of you has, have ever seen a relay race transpire, comes at that moment when the baton is passed from one runner to the next. In one sense, the success and victory stands or falls in this moment. As the baton is passed, if it drops, any type of momentum that had been gained is then quickly lost and could spell uh, the loss of the race altogether. And here we see in this chapter the passing of the baton from David to Solomon. Uh, even as David in his old age, as we considered this morning, uh, nearly stumbled and fell towards the end of his reign, yet uh, he was roused to action through the word of the prophet and has decisively spoken who his successor was appointed to be according to the word of the Lord. And now as that baton is being passed, Solomon, we see here, has little time for action. I'm sorry, little time, I, I, I should have put it, he has little time to waste. Because there are so many loose threads here at the end of David's reign that need to be reckoned with. 
in order to secure the kingdom, that the kingdom of God might be established, Solomon must act decisively and in wisdom. We notice this over and over again in the charge David gives to Solomon. Now act according to your wisdom. And this is before the Lord even bestows Solomon with uh, that supernatural wisdom that he has given in chapter 3. But David himself recognizes and he calls to, to, to task Solomon's heavy goal that stands before him if the kingdom is to be established. There's two things I'd like us to consider this evening. First, I would like us to consider David's charge to Solomon. You see that here in the first 12 verses. And then we would, I would like us to consider Solomon's discharge of his duties from verses 13 through the end of the chapter. David's charge to Solomon and then Solomon's discharge of his duties as it is signified before us in four distinct vignettes, four particular actions that Solomon is required to accomplish in order to secure the peace and stability of the kingdom. As we turn to this, uh, this second chapter in these opening verses, what we find before us sounds something similar to something you might see in The Godfather. You, you look at this and you read and go, how, how, what is this doing in the Bible? There are so many commentators who even don't know what to do with this. They, they seem to view Solomon as some type of bloodthirsty tyrant, which I think misses the point of the narrative. What we find here is a critical juncture in the history of the kingdom. It's, again, as I mentioned a few moments ago, like the passing of the baton in a relay race. Now, so much rides on the transition from father to son. As we had seen this morning in chapter 1, David had regained his royal dignity, like Theoden when Wormtongue had been banished. And here we find David's final words, final words which are important, but also mirror the counsel of older saints at other critical junctures in salvation history. As David's words to Solomon mirror the words of Israel's last words to Joseph, in Genesis 47, or of Moses' final words to Joshua, and even of Joshua's final words to the nation of Israel. Be strong and show yourself a man. Here we find the impartation of wisdom uh, as the torch is passed down, as new leadership is assumed. Even as David is about to walk the way of the earth, so Solomon is called to walk in the way of Yahweh. Be strong and show yourself a man. Where we find here that masculinity is found not in beards or bodybuilding, but in obedience to walk according to the rules set forth in God's word. It is a full-orbed walk. Notice the uh, sheer number of terms and synonyms that describe the nature of Solomon's duties that are set before him. His charge, his ways, his statutes, his commandments, those judgments, those testimonies. In other words, God's word is to shape every facet of your life from every angle. With a particular promise set in view that you might prosper. It's kind of interesting here, that word there for prosper in Hebrew is the exact, has the same root word for wisdom. Like a tree that bears fruit, prosperity is the fruit of wise living. 
In one sense, David is not saying anything different from what every believing father was charged to pass on to his own children. Something that was required of every Israelite, according to Deuteronomy, that we are to love the Lord our God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that we are to pass on this charge to our children. When you rise, when you walk, when you eat, when you sleep, something that's still pertinent and relevant to this day for us as we pass on the faith to our own children in the covenant. But in verses 5 and following, David specifies the nature of this charge as the crown now rests on Solomon's head. Solomon has a particular set of duties which he is to fulfill because he is now the king of the kingdom of Israel. Solomon is now the representative of the nation. He is to lead by example. And as the rest of the book of Kings illustrates, the nation will follow the spiritual maturity or spiritual immaturity of her leadership. How important it is that a nation or a church's leaders... Walk in wisdom. So David enjoins to Solomon very specific instructions. He is uh, Those instructions that he is required to accomplish in order to bring the kingdom to its intended rest. That Israel would be delivered from all of her enemies. That she might have peace all around. And therefore David calls and summons Solomon to act in judgment and in grace to come in judgment against Joab and Shimei as we see here in verse 6 and to come in grace towards Barzillai and the friends of the kingdom to come in judgment against Joab whose treachery had incurred blood guilt on David's house and against Shimei who had cursed David's house but to come in grace to bless the friends of the kingdom to cause them to sit and to eat at the king's table for the rest of their days. You see that there in verse 7. Both are needed. Judgment and grace. Justice and mercy. And yet, this is not all that Solomon has to contend with. We see here in verses 13 to 25, it begins even after David has died. Adonijah once again grasps for the throne. The very man whom Solomon had spared at the end of chapter 1 now has presumed upon the mercy of the king with a high hand. So we recall from this morning, Adonijah had uh, tried to incite a mutiny against his own younger brother to claim the crown for himself. And though he had been found out and though Solomon had been rightly crowned as the king of the nation, rather than putting Adonijah to death, Solomon had summoned his brother forth even though Adonijah had gone and, and hung, clung to the tents of the, um, the, the horns at, at the tabernacle and the altar, Adon, and uh, Solomon had Adonijah brought forth and said, If you will show yourself a worthy man, you will live. But if you prove yourself to be treacherous, you shall die. Think of what amnesty was offered to his own brother. What mercy was displayed to Adonijah, and here we see Adonijah's response to such mercy. You can almost hear the hiss of the serpent in Adonijah's own words as he appears before Bathsheba, who is Solomon's mother, but is not Adonijah's own mother. As Adonijah appears before her and tells her, the kingdom was mine, 
and the people wanted it. Delusions of grandeur, to say the least. We remember what we heard this morning. Adonijah had declared himself king under cover of darkness in a hiding place. While the rest of the people are shouting with joy that Solomon is crowned as the true king. Adonijah has begun to twist the word, saying, no, this is something that the people want. They really want me to be their leader. And it was mine, but the Lord took it from me and gave it to my brother. And so Adonijah makes for a particularly odd request. He asks that David's concubine, Abishag, the Shunammite, we read about this morning, the, the winner of the Miss Israel pageant, he asks that she be made his wife. It seems like a rather odd request, but perhaps harmless, unless we remember what happened under Absalom. See, Absalom tried the very same thing. In the ancient world, the one who controlled the harem was the one who was said to control the throne and the crown. And when Absalom tried to mutiny against his own father David years earlier, one of the first things that Absalom did was he took the members of David's harem by the rooftop and publicly violated them to try to demonstrate his own power and control of the throne. Here, Adonijah is trying the exact same feat by subterfuge. If he can make Abishag his, who was his father's concubine, he can lay claim to the throne once more. Notice the response of Bathsheba. Sure, I will, uh, I'll tell him. I'll, I'll tell Solomon gladly. She goes and she presents the request uh, to Solomon. Look how Solomon responds. Why don't you just give him the throne while you're at it? Solomon knows right away, according to his wisdom, the very type of, uh, of shrewd, underhanded treachery that Adonijah is trying once again. He says, why don't you just give the kingdom that to, to Adonijah? In fact, why don't you give the kingdom to his co-conspirators as well? Solomon knows right away what is happening. Unlike David, who had done nothing under Absalom in his mutiny, Solomon acts decisively. Solomon is aware of Adonijah's scheme. He knows what is going on. He sees the deception for what it is. And though amnesty had once been granted to Adonijah, Adonijah had taken Solomon's kindness as a means to a greater end. For him to try once again a mutinous rebellion against his own younger brother. The kingdom could not be at peace until the king's enemies are all put in the ground, even if that enemy is his own brother. And Solomon acts, painful as it might have to might be. I mean, again, how would you act if your own sibling tried to do this to you? It would hurt. No doubt. And yet Solomon knows what must be done, and he acts decisively. And Adonijah is put to death. The scene now shifts in verses 26 and 27. One of the other co-conspirators is addressed, though not in the same manner. With Adonijah, Solomon said, okay, I'm giving you one more chance, and if you fail, you will die. By contrast here with Abiathar, he says, you deserved death immediately. I should put you to death, even now. 
But I'm going to spare you and put you under house arrest because you have served with my father. However, although you might live, you can no longer serve as a priest. It's kind of interesting here because it becomes the prerogative of the king to show mercy to him who he wants to show mercy to. He shows mercy at Anijah for a time. And the, the type of mercy he shows to Abiathar is of a different sort. He says, I should have put you to death right away, but it's my prerogative. I'm going to give you another chance. However, you can no longer serve as priest. And though it is the prerogative of the king to show mercy to whom he wills, at the same time we find that Solomon's actions have been guided by the prophetic word. This is something that the author of Kings brings out. Abiathar was a member of Eli's house. We remember the opening chapters of 1 Samuel. The Lord himself had uttered this very promise that he will remove every member of the house of Eli from serving in the priesthood. Here we see that prophetic word come to fulfillment through the wisdom of the king who acts according to the ministry of the word. The Lord had sworn that he would extirpate the whole of Eli's house from the priesthood and now... Abiathar is removed, though he is not put to death. It is justice, but we also see the mercy there. It's justice because he's no longer a part of the priesthood as God has promised, and yet there is mercy because Abiathar's life is spared. In verses 28 to 35, we see a third vignette regarding that of Joab, David's former trusted commander. Once again, we're reminded David may have been indecisive in his final days, but Solomon is not. There is a new sheriff in town, and he has come to clean house. Joab knows that his days are numbered, and what does he do? He makes a beeline for the altar for refuge. The very same thing that Adonijah had done just a few verses prior. Joab tries the same thing, and yet the king's response to Joab is very different from his response uh, to Adonijah, who earlier in the previous chapter had fled to the altar. But we need to recall Joab's sins. What is it that Joab is being punished for? He's been um, uh, being punished for violating the rules of engagement. What was it that Joab had done previously, under previous wars, Joab had slain the enemy generals in times of peace. He had violated the rules of engagement. He slays Abner not during time of war, but as an act of a personal vendetta. If you recall, under the, um, uh, the cloak and camouflage of peace, and even Joab had executed Absalom, though Absalom had rebelled against David, Joab had acted what he thought was as, as, as an act of, of loyalty to David, it was still against the wishes of the king. What we're seeing here is, is an understanding of the proper chain of command, aren't we? Even if David had done wrong, he was still, Joab was still supposed to act according to David's wishes, and he had not done that. He had slain David's own uh, son, Absalom. And though Joab had been demoted at the time, we had found uh, that even after his demotion, he killed the new general Amasa out of jealousy. Notice here in verse 5, David's, how he spoke of Joab, that, that Joab doesn't have blood on his armor. That would be a picture of, of a man who had fought justly in an act of war. 
Rather, the blood is on his belt and on his shoes. In other words, these were personal acts. Personal acts of vendetta. These were unjustifiable murders. It reminds us that there are such things as unjustifiable killings even in wartime. Joab had acted as a representative of the throne, and he had incurred blood guilt on the throne by his actions as a representative of his king. He had violated the proper rules of engagement in warfare, as it were. But as we consider why it is that Solomon does what he does, I think when we consider what what Moses says, we begin to recognize with clarity why it is Solomon acts in response to Joab in this particular way. When you read the Mosaic Law, it prescribed a place of refuge for unintended manslaughter. But as we find here, this was not an act of unintended manslaughter. These were premeditated acts of murder uh, under the, the cover and guise of warfare, even though they were personal acts of vendetta. They were premeditated acts of murder. Listen to what Moses says in Exodus 21. If a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him even from my altar that he might die. In other words, Solomon as the king is acting in accordance with the Mosaic law. Does that make sense? He is acting according to the word of the Lord that has been given him as the king of the people of God. As king, he has submitted to God's ordinances and statutes, the very thing that David had charged him with in the opening of this chapter. You need to walk according to all that the Lord has said. And we see in these very uh, uh, these four distinct vignettes, Solomon is doing just that. There's the prophetic word against Abiathar that he is acting according to. And there is the, the, the legal word that, is God, that God has given through Moses and how he is to treat premeditated murder. You can't even cling to the horns of the altar and find mercy at this point. At least not under Moses. And so Joab has no place for refuge. This is why Solomon has Joab removed and put to death. Solomon, in other words, is fully fulfilling the charge that had been committed to him by his father David. It has been years since Joab had murdered these men. Matthew Henry, commenting on this chapter, says this, Time does not wear out the guilt of any sin. I think that's an application that is relevant for us all. Be certain your sin will find you out. The day of reckoning will come. Repent before it is too late. In response to these actions, as the priest and the commander of the armies have now been dealt with and removed from office in various ways, Solomon replaces Joab with Benaniah, and Abiathar he replaces with Zadok. In other words, Solomon, in establishing the kingdom, has removed the treacherous leadership and put in their place godly, faithful men who will execute the king's decrees in subjection to the law of Moses and the word of the prophets. Here is a picture of a wise king. What kind of king does Israel need? The very question we considered this morning, one who acts according to the word of the Lord, in every aspect, in every facet. Which leads us to our final test case, 
This man, Shimei, in verses 36 to 46. Shimei, if you recall, was one of Saul's relatives, a man who had grown bitter that David had been given the kingdom and not a member of Saul's own household. During the war against Absalom, Shimei had pronounced a curse on David's house. When David had defeated Absalom, Shimei begged for his life, but it seems as though he had not changed his attitude, attitude to who it was that sat on the throne. He saw the king as one who could dispense mercy to him, but he didn't, still did not think that the king rightfully, the one who sat on the throne rightfully was the king. So Solomon puts Shimei to the test. He puts him under house arrest. The very same thing he had done with Abiathar, right? But now he, put, he puts uh, Shimei under house arrest in Jerusalem. And notice how Shimei agrees to the terms. He says, Solomon says to Shimei, is this good? He goes, yes, it is good, my lord. I agree. This is fair. This is just. And Shimei abides by the charge that is given him until it is proven inconvenient. And that's the situation we have. Two years go by. Two of his slaves run away. And so he breaks his house arrest to go and retrieve them from Gath. And here that incident exposes his heart. Here's a man who does not fear the king. Here's a man who does not take the king's word seriously. He only submits to that word when it proves convenient and nothing more. Verse 44, literally the, goes something like this, where Solomon says to Shimei, You yourself have known all the evil which your heart has known. In other words, you have indulged in the depths of your own depravity in pursuit of evil, and you have never truly repented from the heart. David knew it. That's why David gave that church to Solomon. He says, remember what Shimei had done. I promised that I would not put him to death with the sword, but his character has proven the type of man he is. So Solomon gave him one more chance to test whether or not he truly feared the king. Shimei had not acted unwittingly. He had sinned with a high hand. He knew what he was doing. Solomon says, didn't, didn't I ask you? Is, is this a fair sentence? And didn't you tell me, yes, my king, it is a fair sentence, so why have you gone and disobeyed it? Solomon has tried Shimei, he's given him a chance, and he has found him as well to be a worthless man. And the kingdom cannot be at peace so long as the man who has cursed David line, David's line lives. Shimei must be put to death. And so Solomon has him put to death. Judgment has come. Proverbs 25.5 says this. Take away the wicked before the king, and his throne will be established in righteousness. I think that's an adequate summary of what we see going on here in chapter 2. Solomon is removing the wicked from the kingdom, particularly those in leadership. Sobering reminder, even as Peter writes to the church in 1 Peter 4, judgment begins at the house of God. James reminds us that those who are officers in Christ's kingdom are held to a much higher degree of accountability. And here we see the internal threats to the kingdom. See, Solomon not only has to worry about those foes from without, he first has to deal with the foes from within. 
the threat to the throne seen in the person of Adonijah, the sanctity of the priesthood found in Abiathar the priest, and the peace of the kingdom which is threatened by Joab, who has proven himself to be a liar and untrustworthy. The man who had sought to curse the kingdom, Shimei. Solomon acts according to wisdom in establishing the kingdom. He acts according to the word of his father, the King David. He acts according to the prophets. And he acts according to Moses. Here's a king who is doing all that the king is called to do according to the book of Deuteronomy. Solomon as king comes in judgment that he might secure the peace of the kingdom. Destruction of his enemies are intended to bring peace and stability. And he achieves peace and rest. That the friends of the king might enjoy the peace of the kingdom and sit at his table. It might be easy to simply skip over verse 7, wouldn't it be? Because David does not simply say to execute all of his enemies. But he says, remember that of Barzillai. Remember the cause of the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, to feast at the table. If you were to read 2 Samuel chapter 17 to 19, you would be reminded that Barzillai was an 80-year-old man who had fed and housed David as he was on the run from Absalom. Surely by this point in time, Barzillai had died, but David desires that his sons would be blessed for the rest of their days. And this is what Solomon does. And the discharge of his office, Solomon has appointed new leadership for a godly regime, that of Benaniah over the army, that of Zadok over the priesthood, and he has welcomed to his table to feast with his family all of his days, those who were friends of David, even during the mutinous insurrection of Absalom's war. And in the discharge of his office, Solomon depicts for us a picture of Christ who reigns and rules in all of his wisdom, in all of his majesty, in all of his mercy, and in all of his justice. Christ is king. And as king, he has a kingdom with its own laws, with its own office bearers, with its own judgments. And that kingdom on earth subsists in the life of of his church. The very thing that we should consider this evening is the question that we've asked earlier. Do we fear Christ as king? Or do we treat him as some type of lucky rabbit's foot? Are we like Adonijah to presume upon his mercy that we might continue indulging in those sins without any type of repentance, without any type of change? Solomon had shown mercy to Abiathar and Shimei. One submitted to his lordship. There's no record of Solomon ever having to put Abiathar to death. But Shimei scoffed at the king's mercy and he was found out. Christ has come to us in mercy. What good news that is. But that grace is not given that we are to continue to revel in pet sins. It's the very question that Paul asks as he writes his letter to the Church of Rome. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Absolutely not. This is not some form of sloppy agape. This is a very sobering passage. 
that the justice displayed here is a firm justice, but it's not a justice without mercy. There is real mercy, but it is mercy that is intended to be treated. What is it that we we consider in Psalm 130? With you, O Lord, there is the forgiveness of sins. Why? That you may be feared. So teach us to number our days, that we might have a heart of wisdom according to all that you have done. That firm justice that God gives is a merciful justice for so long as it is still called today, that offer of amnesty, that offer of pardon still stands. It's the very thing that the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 3. While it is still called today, do not harden your hearts as we see under the old covenant with so many, an entire nation at one point in time, save but a spare few. While he offers peace and pardon, let us hear his voice today, lest if not we perish in the way, are the very words that we sang this evening. Will you heed his voice and turn to him who is alone the fountain of every blessing, who beckons us to come and to feast at his table? Or will we be like Adonijah or Shimei and scoff? And so trample the blood of Christ underfoot and be found without mercy on the last day. The great promise of the gospel is still found. Seek the Lord while it is still called today. Seek the Lord while he may be found, for with him there is forgiveness that he may be feared. And it is the fear of the Lord which constitutes the beginning of wisdom. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, and we pray that your word would rouse us from our apathy uh, to your holy commands, that we might be diligent to walk in holiness all of our days, knowing that we have nothing to rest upon uh, apart from your free mercy in Christ. But we pray that you would strengthen us to say no to ungodliness and say yes to the things you've called us to believe and to do. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.